Welcome to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast with your hosts, Richard Hill and Matthew Darlitz. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Science of Psychotherapy. I'm Matthew Darlitz, Editor-in-Chief of the Science of Psychotherapy and here with Managing Editor Richard Hill. Howdy, Richard. Howdy, Matt. Fantastic to be here. We're wearing our um, our podcast interviewer hats today, mm-hmm. um, although we are managers and chiefs and, and all oh, these, whatever. Yes, the, always very important <laughs> positions we hold. <laughs> I feel so much better. And what's lovely about today, our lovely guest today, is uh, it's someone who certainly is in America, but uh, comes from uh, originally Libya. But anyway, tell us a little bit about him, me rabbiting on. Yeah, yeah. So um, Dr. Rida, uh, Omar Rida, he's a leading expert in psychotraumatology and trauma-informed care, as well as the mental health of Muslims, immigrants and refugees, the Libyan Revolution and the Arab Spring, and is the author of several books and a highly sought-after dynamic public speaker. And we're going to be talking about one recent book in particular today, Richard. Yes. So this is the book, a beautifully simple title, The Wounded Healer. And Mm. How many of, of everybody of listening just suddenly go, oh, yeah, that's me. Uh, <laughs> and um, so this will give us a beautiful insight. It's a lovely book. I mean, it really is just, it's the sort of book that that it, it, I keep taking inward breaths as, mm. as I read the book. But then I also have some beautiful sighs and, mm. uh, and sort of, ah, oh, yeah. So it, it's uh, testing and comforting at the same time. And, and, you know, I'm dying to hear some of the stories of, because she was, he's been in the middle of some really extraordinary stuff. Fantastic. Now, before we um, jump across to say hi to Omar, thanks everyone for tuning into the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. And if you appreciate what we're doing here and you'd like to support us, please go across to the scienceofpsychotherapy.net. That's our academy site. Become a member and join us on our exciting journey. And you won't be able to see this unless you're looking on YouTube, but if you're on the podcast, <laughs> but I'm holding up our book, The Practitioner's Guide to the Science of Psychotherapy. Yeah. Please jump on in, have a look at that. It's uh, on the website. We'll show you. It's on Amazon. Uh, Norton's talk about it. But this is this is really a gathering together, and we're getting some really nice reviews. We got we got an uh, unsolicited review from Michael Yapko the other day. Jonathan Wills just ga- gave us mm. some some things. The Gains, uh, the Interpersonal Neurobiology Association. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think they like it. I, I feel like <laughs> Sally Fields. They like me, but um, <laughs> it is hard when you write a book. So that's there. So check that out. But let's now, uh, enough of our stuff, we'll uh, go talk to the wonderful Omar Rida. Dr. Omar Rida, thank you so much for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. Great to see you. Thank you very much. It's uh, such a pleasure and honor. Oh, it's it's our honor, Omar, because uh, we know what it's like to write a book. Uh, We've we've, (laughs) we've had the good fortune to, to have one of ours come out recently. But this particular uh, book, The Wounded Healer, talking talking about the the nature of psychotherapy and of therapists and of people, but but their experience, their personal experience engaged. What was what led you to write the book, or what what became the pathway that enabled it to come about? Yeah, thank you. So I believe that. Uh... Most of us are wounded healers, so we have our own trauma stories. We have personal experiences, and uh, I happened to, you know, leave my home country as a refugee. And then when I came to the United States, it was uh, after September 11, so went through uh, some, 
you know, discrimination and hate and Islamophobia. And then uh, my home country, Libya, went through a civil war in 2011. So I uh, went and uh, tried to help the children, uh, tried to work with people who were displaced, and then found myself uh, at the border of Syria and Turkey, the border of Bangladesh and Burma, working with refugees. So uh, I got engaged with uh, this work and uh, found out not only the clients that we serve have their own wounds and trauma stories, but also our families and uh, ourselves, like wounded healers. So my focus this year has been on uh, my colleagues because many of them are leaving the field of medicine and uh, psychiatry, I believe, is the most beautiful field of medicine, by the way. And uh, many of them, they leave because of uh, compassion fatigue, vicarious trauma, and total mm. burnout. And some of them are using substance so they can numb their moral distress and deal with their own PTSD, which I believe is a moral distress, not mental disorder. And then uh, I started to write about the topic in the psychiatric times, and uh, looks like I got the attention of uh, Norton, which is a publishing company who reached out to me and they asked if I can write the book. Yeah, they wonderful. reached out to you. That's that's marvelous. So your your uh, uh, your article, your essay was obviously very impactful. But I think it the subject matter is is so impactful. The uh, I, I wrote some years ago, uh, and I've been sort of pursuing the idea. Uh, I was asked to write an article about post traumatic growth. Which was very helpful uh, for a lot of people, but in the I don't think they're um, they're disconnected. The, the the nature of the fact of the traumatic the traumatic difficulty, the traumatic stress, and this thing of growth, it's sort of a, a co building experience. But but you've done this, you've had this learning experience, not in the although there's certainly a lot of traumas in the West, but you had it on the front lines in in places where the battle was was not was not mental it was physical uh so can yeah. you can you share with us some of the 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 nature of that experience of both having trauma having traumatic growth uh, and this complex interaction that happens with people yeah absolutely i mean uh, i believe that you know being on the front line doesn't necessarily only mean you're going to have uh, physical wounds most of the struggle that we see in Libya right now, my home country at least, after the civil war, has been uh, because of the invis invisible wounds, which is the psychosocial wounds. Mm. And this is the same thing that I see now uh, in the aftermath of the pandemic. Uh, I think uh, I predict we're going through a different kind of pandemic, which is a psychosocial crisis. Many people, because of the isolation and the human disconnection, are going through a difficult time. We have seen a sharp increase in the rates of depression and anger, substance use, and even suicide. That's why it's uh, my mission to try to uh, untangle all of this dysfunction, either on individual level or family level or community level. Right. And there's a lot of um, these psychosocial wounds, as you say, like there's direct wounded and there's also vicarious wounds and um and so I'd love to hear more about um your experience personally dealing with the vicarious trauma 
So um, there are many ways that uh, I dealt with my own PTSD, and I'm, I'm very open about the fact that I actually had, you know, encounters with the nightmares and flashbacks, and because mm-hmm. uh, I have seen firsthand the impact of how ugly a human violence can be. I, I lost loved ones and was about to lose my whole f- family, actually, on March 19, 2011, when uh, Mr. Gaddafi ordered the city of Benghazi to be completely wiped out. So my whole family and 750,000 people were about to die that day. And uh, I was uh, trying to get hold of my mom. And eventually, after many phone calls, I was able to. And she told me uh, she was very proud of me that um, you know, I'm doing the right things by speaking up and taking care of the humanitarian needs of people. But then she said, son, I'm going to see you in heaven. And uh, this is something that I never expected. <laughs> I, I don't think any child should hear their mom, uh, you know, say that. And mm. I, I'm glad that she survived that day, but uh, I lost her in 2016. But still, I mean, listening to vicarious Trauma means we are listening with compassion to the detailed pain of others. So we are bearing witness to traumatic stories of uh, our clients, our community members, and in some cases, our loved ones. And that takes a very heavy toll on on the soul. So mm-hmm. I, I believe, uh, you know, PTSD of caregivers is actually something that affects our deep soul. And the more gentle you are, the more compassionate and empathetic uh, you pay the price of that in the form of uh, compassion fatigue and vicarious trauma and even burnout if you don't find the balance through self-care. Yes, I, I can't imagine that just in the audience listening now that everybody hasn't had a, some degree of inward breath as you just gave this very gentle overview of the difficulties uh, and the, 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 that, that struggle. I mean, I just mm-hmm. found my head tilting to the side like, oh, my God. Uh, and so there's just a just a, a, a little taste, but what, but one of the things that that has been intriguing me lately is certainly this idea of being empathetic. So that sense where you actually have this co-experience of the difficulty, and being attuned to somebody, so kind of knowing their experience, but not necessarily. Uh, uh, feeling it in the same sort of uh, 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 vicarious sort of way we do with empathy. And this, I think, what I, I feel as I read your book is that the stories are there to help us strengthen in in some ways. What, am I on some sort of track there? Or, uh, and what was, what was your feeling in, in sharing these stories in the book? Yeah, I mean, absolutely right, Richard. I mean... Uh... So I believe that when we listen to trauma stories of others, we should not focus on the graphic and painful details. Uh, that might give us despair and make us uh, not believe in the you know, beauty of uh, humanity. I'm a big believer that humans are beautiful regardless of how we sometimes hate each other and damage and hurt each other. But, uh, you know, I, I believe, you know, when you listen to someone, try to understand that they survived the worst of their trauma. So focus on their coping, on their resilience, and celebrate their culture. Try to be with them. That's uh, what we do. We bear witness. We walk with our clients. We don't walk the walk for them. 
we don't uh, disempower them. And, uh, you know, I don't walk into the room or a refugee camp or armed conflict zone as the, you know, arrogant expert. I try to be humble and listen to the local context and try to learn from the culture or the religion how I can fill the gaps of whatever is uh, missing. Because most people are trying their best given their circumstances. There are uh, some resources and services already established. But uh, whenever we go into a war zone or refugee camp, we try to connect with the local organizations first and learn what's uh, missing. Most of the time it's just training or uh, education, supervision, consultation. And this is how I created my model Untangled. And uh, one part of Untangled is to take care of the caregiver. That's why the wounded healer. Mm-hmm. So this aspect of focusing on strengths, on resilience, celebrating the, the positive things of the culture, these are protective measures for, for the caregiver. Yeah, absolutely. Because like, uh, you know, we talk about post-traumatic growth and I, I believe Dr. Gabor Mate also talks about mm. post-traumatic wisdom. Mm-hmm. And uh, I will never change my trauma story, despite how painful it is. Uh, I will not change a thing about it because it made me a better human. So this is what we get out of uh, going through the fires of trauma. We learn how to grow. We learn things that make us more wise, but make things that make us more human. Yes, and- yes. And as a, as a therapist, sorry, Matt, uh, but no, just right. as, a, as a therapist, it's helping people reconnect with their growing mechanisms, their growing, their personal growing mechanisms. And I, I mean, we do a lot of, uh, I have a lot of focus on the fact that everything is, every individual is a different system. So the thing is, there's a, a, a lack of consistency in your clients Yet we can have a, a consistency. Your untangled approach um, is an approach that, to me, seems to uh, feed into the fact that what you're untangling is a different story each time, is a different different process. Is that also, though, a difficulty for a therapist to have to re, almost re-engage and reattune each time? It's easy to sort of just keep shoveling out the same stuff. Well, I think we chose this field because we uh, really care about others. And we most likely, when somebody leaves our uh, office or the session, um, sometimes we reflect on what they got out of that session. And many times it's not really uh, the medication that I prescribe or uh, psychodynamic interpretation I make during the session. Most of the time it's uh, the human connection, something more Mm -hmm. basic that they will come out of that session. So when I go to a refugee camp, it's not doing a, you know psychoanalysis or CBT necessarily. Uh, I don't expose people through exposure therapy or um, any kind of modality in the immediate aftermath. These are very important treatments uh, mm, yes. in, in the aftermath of trauma, but it's usually not in the immediate aftermath. So usually I just try to focus on psychological first aid mental health first aid, uh, their safety in the here and now. And Untangled, very briefly, is a a model of five components. So when I go to an organization or a community or a country, I just, the first thing is to tackle the stigma through education. Mm -hmm. Uh, Second thing is to raise capacity uh, through 
training, usually training of trainers. So you leave a team behind that can continue this mission. The third one, which is uh, very effective, is uh, building safe spaces for the community. And uh, I love doing play and art therapy with children during yes. these safe spaces. Yeah. And the fourth one is building culturally sensitive resources, like a hotline or crisis team. And uh, very few people will need the fifth component, which is uh, the actual therapy or medication management, the clinical services. Hmm. Yeah. It's it's very interesting that uh, I did a, a quite a lot of work in uh, suicide, um, which was both, as you say, both fabulous and and enriching, but also very difficult and uh, uh, and and testing. But that those first those first um, four, I recognise those very strongly. It's in the sense that very very pragmatic in the moment uh, needs and um, um, enabling people to 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 be able to function. Uh, it's a very functional sort of framework and sensitive to the individual as well. Mm. Yeah. Uh, so it's really beautiful what you've yeah. done there. And it's isn't it great that if you give. Um, you know, a, a, a people that have been through trauma, these things, education, training, safe space, resources, like you said, most of the time they don't need the therapy. They don't need maybe the drug intervention or um, that they have the capacity to, to, I guess, heal themselves in a way. Yeah, I mean, Dr. Bruce Perry in his uh, recent book, What Happened to You, he actually said, you know, most therapy happens outside the therapy room so most healing happens outside our offices. Uh, it happens within our interpersonal space when I become a human, not necessarily have the power dynamic of being the therapist or the psychiatrist in the room. When I show my own compassion and humanity and vulnerability, um, many times I share um, my trauma story with uh, people so they can understand that you know we can actually cope with trauma, learn from trauma and become better people because of it yes and on this point of um of post-traumatic growth or, or wisdom so so you know we we're in the business because you know we we have empathy and and we care for people but that also is like a risk factor for vicarious trauma and yet when we go through it it in, it seems to increase our capacity um, for empathy but then is there also a protective measure as well. So then it becomes less, our, our increased empathy becomes less of a risk factor. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, we need to find the balance, I think, here, Matt. Um, so many people, they engage uh, and extremely engage uh, on the expense of their own mental health. So if we practice self-care and we do it both in isolation, like doing solitary acts of uh, taking care of our body, our mind, our heart, and our soul. And uh, I'm a very big believer that we need to take care of uh, our comprehensive well-being. Because many of us, we go on breaks, but when we come from our vacation, we are as exhausted or more exhausted than when uh, we yes. left. <laughs> and this is because we focus on the body. Very few of us, we engage in the wellness of our mind and our heart, and especially our soul. So this is uh, one thing that's very important. The, the second thing, as you said, like um, the more gentle and compassionate you are, the more prone to compassion fatigue. So make sure that uh, you have some gas left in your tank uh, to give to your family and especially don't give them the leftovers. 
many times I say, you know, many of uh, us in this field, we do this hard work uh, on the expense of our loved ones. So we are chasing the quote unquote the American dream and we lose the American dream chasing it. And we do this in every single country and every single culture. We uh, try to take care of others, but most of the time, our loved ones get only um, the exhausted father who comes home and exhausted spouse. And then we have nothing left to take care of our own needs and nurse our own wounds. Some of us uh, have very active wounds that are being reactivated every day, listening to traumatic stories of our clients. Yeah, yeah. And now we've been talking about, uh, especially in the world of psychotherapy, self-care for decades. And yet, um, in my experience of supervising psychotherapists, we still don't do that very well. (laughs) Um, What what sort of um, tips, guidelines, uh, methods do you have uh, for self-care? Yeah, I mean, there are many. Uh, One of them, as I said, uh, if we are practicing self-care in isolation, uh, I'm okay with that. but I believe most of uh, healing of human suffering happens in a relational context. So it's important to also build community of care, uh, you know, colleagues that care about us, neighbors, relatives, loved ones who will check on us and we check on them and we become authentic and genuine and open about our own feeling. Because uh, so, some people will say, I don't want to be a burden on my family. Believe it or not, your silence and your shutting down is more burdensome for them than you talking. And you will do anything for them. So now you are taking away their privilege to also be able to give. There is a book called The uh, you know, Go-Giver. And the, that book talks about how when we prevent people from giving, this is a kind of selfish because uh, we are trying to, you know, reciprocate. You know, I, I give to others, but also I receive from others. So there is nothing wrong about that. And some of us, we have our culture of uh, if you practice self-care, that means you are selfish. And I think it's the most selfless thing to actually take care of yourself because that means you will have enough uh, to give to others. So if uh, I have thousands of people who are relying on me and standing on my shoulder, the minute I fall, the whole system will crumble. So in order to protect them from falling and from losing me as a caregiver, I should take care of myself. So yes, uh, there are tips to take care of the body. And we know that we um, practice that a lot, like maybe sleep hygiene and eating healthy and exercise and going on a walk, fresh air and breathing exercise and so on. But uh, I also want to pay attention to the needs of our mind. So not engaging in self-loathing language, um, you know, entertaining self-positive talk is very important. And uh, taking care of our heart usually happens in a social context. So making sure we have enough uh, healthy psychosocial support network and also taking care of our deep soul. And uh, you don't have to have a religion or a faith to do that, just to practice spirituality and look with the care and compassion to your very, very deep soul and listen to your inner voice. Mm. And I'm seeing. I'm just thinking there, which is something that uh, is very important in in the, the the sharing, in the speaking of things. Both because the other people can help you, and the other family members and loved ones can engage, but also you can hear yourself. 
you know, listen to yourself. And so you get that that sort of objective, uh, you get a sort of a subjective, objective uh, view. But the the value of, of sharing is that you can listen to yourself and see whether you're progressing and hear whether you're progressing or whether you're staying stuck. Uh, and I've noticed this with clients. If they come in and they talk about a problem and we do something, then the next time they come in, they talk about it, it's a little different and it's changed. I go, okay, we've got growth. But if they come back and keep talking about the problem and keep saying it and keep repeating it, then, of course, we've got some kind of negative uh, feedback going. So by being able to say something, you're able to to help yourself realise you're improving or not improving, but also it gives your loved ones an opportunity to say, hey, you know, I think you're you're not improving. You're, that's the 50th time you've told that same story the same way. Mm-hmm. These are the sorts of values of, uh, uh, of what, and do these sorts of stories, what are the stories that you have in, in your book that help us understand these sorts of aspects? Yeah, I mean, uh, I believe that the culture of uh, therapy is so toxic that, uh, you know, we, uh, we learn at very early stage in our career that we cannot talk about our feelings. It is mm. shameful. I think sometimes I admire the courage of my patients who mm. will open up about their feelings more than I do. So I don't practice what I preach. And uh, this is very unfortunate. And I, I know there are real you know, concerns about losing your license and facing repercussions if you open up about especially your trauma or any mental health struggle. But, uh, you know, I shared many stories in the book about how to really be authentic. And uh, I shared my own story going through many, many traumatic experiences, both uh, inside and outside places of employment. And I I thought my uh, co-workers and people who read the book so far told me that uh, gave them permission also to start to open up about their own uh, stories. And they found out it's not as scary of a monster as they thought. And uh, just spending a few minutes with someone through a community of care, you can change somebody's day and brighten it, or you can save somebody's life. So that's why I'm very um, passionate about this, because we lost enough of our colleagues, and this has to Mm. stop. Yeah, it was drummed into me, you know, in my training, you, you don't share anything about yourself, you know, you're, it's not about you, it's about all about the client. But I found, you know, when I do share um, some of my own experiences, it creates such a such a good bond um, that the, the client sees me as a, a real feeling person that goes through stuff as well. And, you know, obviously don't make it all about me, but it's um, it's it's so important to create that connection, I think. Yeah, they told us uh, self-disclosure is something you never do mm. in therapy or even outside therapy, the culture told us to do that. And, you know, the Western culture will teach you that uh, you are independent. You can do this on your own. Uh, you don't need anybody uh, showing any vulnerability, a sign of weakness. Mm. So you learn to suffer in silence. Uh, at the same time, the Eastern culture, especially where I come from, the Arabic culture, they teach us that uh, if I talk about my feelings, I'm going to burden my family and my it's community. Yeah. So I keep the secret because it is a burden on others. Yeah, I see some of this coming out of um, sort of a corporate coaching 
culture um, where, you know, we learn to leave it at the office, you know, deal with it there, don't bring anything home. And um, mm-hmm. then there's sort of this stigma that if you do bring anything home, if you do talk about, I don't know, a difficult day at the office or a <laughs> difficult day of counselling, then, um, you know, you're not performing your role. You should have You should have left it all there at the yeah. office. But also that other corporate uh, uh, coaching type of thing where everything's fantastic, everything's always wonderful. Every, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you get that you get that dishonest, uh, as you say, right. uh, inauthentic sort of thing. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So do you, what sort of, uh, in finding the authenticity, um, it's difficult. See, I find it very difficult because I, I, my training for being a psychotherapist, for what I call the sensitivity, was I was an actor for 25 years. But I sort of had that career first. And so that's all we did. It was all we did was talk about our, our vulnerabilities, you know, and shared our stuff. I had I've had to tone it down. I've had to you know, pull it back. But the um, uh, it, I think what Aronson and Steele really captured it when they talked about the stereotype threat, just this background idea of what you're supposed to do that then becomes automatic thinking. So we're, we're we're not just withholding ourselves by cognitively restraining ourselves. We actually restrain ourselves uh, as a non as a you know as a as a implicit behaviour. Yeah, and this is mm. yeah. Is this what sort of experiences have you had with um, with therapists and with other people? That do you talk about this sort of aspect in the book? Yeah, I mean, um, I, I believe. Many of us, we practice what we call the superficial kindness. And I love the book, Deep Kindness by Houston Craft. He mentioned that, uh, you know, one day he was in the airport and he noticed that, you know, somebody was sitting next to him and was curious about his book. And she said, you know, what are you writing about? And he got a little annoyed because he wanted to sleep and was very tired. But he said, I'm, I'm talking about deep kindness. And when he explained that topic, the lady started to cry. And he said, what, what's going on? She told him, uh, you know, before boarding the plane, the doctor told her, your father uh, is going to pass away. You have to come immediately. And unfortunately, while waiting for the plane, her father died before she uh, could see him. And she, she said that she spent a couple of hours in the airport crying at the corner of the airport. And about 3,000 people came by, uh, passed by her, and not a single one said, hey, are you okay? Can I give you a tissue? Is your day okay? What can I do for you? And uh, he said, this is what we do also in our places of employment. I will say, hey, Richard, hey, Matt, uh, how's your day going? And I don't even wait for the answer. I'm fine. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And even because I'm used to you not listening to my answer, I would tell you I am fine when I'm really not fine. When I say, how are you today? I should sit down for a few minutes and really listen to you and uh, understand how's your day going. So, you know, I came across a story recently about somebody who went to the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, which is uh, in California. And he went because that bridge is very famous for suicide. So he said that morning I wanted to give the humanity one more time. Uh, I will give them one more chance to prove that uh, humans care about one another. So if uh, one person told me good morning or how's your day going or why are you on the top of the bridge, if even somebody kept an eye contact or smiled at me, I'm not going to jump. 
And he said for about 15 to 20 minutes, hundreds of people passed, but not a single human made a human connection. And he decided to jump and uh, he survived. And, uh, right now he's going to high schools, talking to you know, our children, how important it is to spend a few minutes of deep kindness with someone because you are not, not going to only change uh, their day. You might actually save their lives. Yes, it's right. a, I, in the, the research I was doing, the, the Golden Gate Bridge was an extraordinary. Um, uh, there was a lot of studies done there, lots of uh, interviews with people who uh, had survived. And But I did find an extraordinary um, uh, bit of film. And I'll just share that because it's in the story that you're saying. And this chap, uh, he went there. Uh, he was uh, went there looking left and right as he stood. Uh, nobody paid him att- any attention. He sat up on the rail facing inwards. Nobody paid him attention. And there were people just just 10 or 12 feet away, maybe 15 feet, you know, a little way. He then stood up on the rail uh, and still nobody said thing. The only thing that did happen, but he obviously didn't hear, someone did toot their horn. Uh, and and then and then he let himself go, and it was just that um, that idea of when being connected, finding a nature of way con- of connecting, of being meaningful. But your story and my uh, viewing of this this video, they weren't asking for much. Mm. You know, they're not asking for us to to open up and you know, it's just to smile, just to engage, just to, and this simplicity has been lost to some degree. I, I wonder. Uh, I, it worries me. Does it worry you at all, Omar, in, in in your views of these different nationalities, different places, different cultures? Yeah, I mean, we have, uh, I think, existential crisis of not caring about one another. Yet, I think humans continue to show beauty. I want to share one story because uh, in March of uh, 2019, if you remember, uh, somebody in New Zealand walked into a mosque and he opened fire, killing 51 people during their Friday prayer. So that day, uh, one of my colleagues who happened to be a Jewish neurologist, uh, he survived, basically his family survived the Holocaust and he had his own trauma story, but I never met him before. He called me that morning and he said, Omar, can we meet a cup of coffee in the cafeteria? And we sat down and he just told me that morning he wanted to have a safe space for me. He wanted to just be there for me and bear witness. And then he said, Omar, can I do anything for you? What do you need today? And I said, you already did it. So it didn't take much, uh, just a tender moment of uh, kindness and just a random act of kindness towards a total stranger is uh, all I needed that day to feel safe and to feel connected. So I absolutely agree with you. Most of our healing happens in these tender moments. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah. And like you say, we are, it does seem like, especially well, the Western culture that I know, we are in an ex- existential crisis. Um you know, like Richard, I've seen mm, fair share of uh, video reports of people ignoring people who are obviously in need of help. And uh, therapists, psychiatrists, you know, we're on the front line of um, turning the tide, I would say. So, yes, it's, yeah. a, it's a, it's, I mean, it is interesting, this word beauty, 
that has has come up so often. I know my, my mentor Ernest Rossi uh, wrote in 1990. Uh, it was uh, art, truth, and beauty uh, as a as a way of guiding. And uh, I was fascinated listening to uh, a TED talk by Murray Gelman, the astrophysicist. And he was saying, we know that a mathematical equation is correct when it is beautiful. And uh, he actually said, I did this beautiful equation and uh, everybody tried to say it was wrong, but uh, no, it, it was more beautiful. But that beauty has a, um, has a, we have a sense of it and it's a natural indicator of things being well. Uh, now, we, we then try and institutionalise and we, we do all kinds of things to ruin it by saying you're beautiful if you are so high or so tall or wear certain makeup or wear the right clothes. But it's almost like all these fashionable things are trying to make up for the, 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 the difficulty of us recognising beauty naturally just through kindness. And that's a beautiful story that you had of of your restaurant, that that the beauty was expressed simply through kindness. Yeah, I mean, my mentor in the Harvard program, Refugee Trauma, Dr. Rachel Molika, he wrote a very beautiful, you know, manifesto. He called it Healing a Violent World. And he actually told me, Omar, if you don't practice beauty, that means you are not practicing medicine. You have to f- oh. look for beauty in every single interpersonal encounter with your clients. And... Uh, I have been doing that and have been very pleasantly surprised. I find beauty in the most unlikely of places. Yeah, that's wonderful. So my principal work is in curiosity. And if you're, if you're curious about finding beauty, then the very beginning of your day is, is a wonderful place. That's, I, I couldn't, um, you couldn't have expressed my own thoughts any more, any more wonderfully. I'm also reminded of this challenge, you know, that, that often pops up, and that's if we could just do one act of kindness, you know, each day, that uh, it would have a dramatic impact on the planet. And, uh, you know, that's, I think that's a, always a good challenge for all of us. We can all do one small act of kindness, right? Absolutely, and it doesn't have to cost any money, actually. Most of mm. these acts of kindness uh, come for free, and I'm a big fan of the work of uh, Rumi, who yes. writes very mm. elegantly about uh, the beauty of the human spirit. But one thing that he said, you can find beauty in the most ugly of places. Mm. Uh, he said, actually, you know, there are beautiful things you can only see in the dark. So in the dark, you know, when it's dark outside, we can see the full moon and shining stars and butterflies and fireworks. Mm. And, uh, you know, you can also see the beauty of the human spirit when it's tested with adversity. Yes. Yeah. So if I can share some of the words from your, your own book, you're talking about a journey of the heart and smink. You, you reference him. Is it caregivers are hosts? They treat their guests with hospitality, sharing the best of what they have. Hospitality entertains curiosity about the guest's story without neglecting that of the host. Welcome the interior movements of your soul. At the heart of compassion is hospitality. As you welcome the stranger, your own humanity and dignity get restored. To care for a guest is to welcome the divine. Wow. Yep. So, that's so poetic. Yeah, I mean, Dr. Edward Smink, uh, he, he wrote a very beautiful book, The Soul of Caregiving, and he has been an excellent mentor 
for me. And uh, really, this work is a uh, work of the soul. We cannot mm-hmm. do it uh, just with our body or our tongues. And I know, unfortunately, the practice of medicine is uh, moving away from that. The, the field is more focused on electronic medical records, and you spend more time with the chart more than with the client. But uh, I think we can do better, and we should do better. We cannot afford the status quo. Yes, we need, we need to know right, but we also need to feel right. Uh, this is this is a testing uh, a testing task, and it's one thing that that to some extent in our new book we're we're trying to to express is the knowledge is valuable, but the knowledge is valuable only to make us more uh, uh, capable of recognizing the, the the other person. As you conduct your practice now, do you do you attract or do you find a, there's a, a a certain type of client coming to have a wide spectrum or do you find that it uh, you know what do you find in your own practice and how you you present this material yeah i mean being curious is very very important and uh, being authentic is very important and sometimes you yes i see clients from all kinds of you know quote unquote diagnoses but uh, you know even those who are hostile most of them, they hurt you because they are hurt. You know that um, many people, they quote-unquote act out symptom that mm. they cannot tell with their own words. It's very difficult for them to put their experience into words, so they act that through a behavior. And we see that very commonly with the children. So I, I just try to you know lean in rather than time out and putting people in seclusion and restraint. It has to bring them into time in sit down with them and try to bear witness as safely as we can. Of course, we don't jeopardize our safety. Mm-hmm. But uh, I have been extremely uh, surprised and pleased with this approach. I think we can do uh, wonderful things if we just listen to one another. I mean, imagine the words of uh, Dr. Smenk when treating a refugee or asylum seeker, somebody who doesn't speak the language or a total stranger, just treat them as non-strangers because uh, Dr. Valerie Kaur in her book, uh, See No Stranger, she did an amazing job how to um, just, she saw people who walked into her temple and she was a Sikh. Somebody walked into their temple and opened fire exactly like what they did in New Zealand. And uh, she said, there must be a trauma story behind why they hate us why somebody hate me even though they never met me before, why somebody call me names because of the way I decide to practice my religion or the way my wife is dressed. Uh, Just I try to find compassion even for people who hate my guts. Mm. Yes, and it is that, and and I think one of the things that I'm finding um, uh, annoying, uh, a bit upsetting, is that when you express something like that, saying, ah, there's someone doing something terrible to me, you know, what is their trauma? Uh, that there's this also this rising of saying, oh, you're you're forgiving them or you're uh, accepting their 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 bad behaviour, and and this is just uh, uh, missing the point that. Uh, understanding and uh, certainly that particular event, I would think that yes, that person, uh, that's it. They've done that terrible that ter- terrible act, and so it has to go through a process. But who else is out there 
that what is this trauma? This capacity for us to take a negative event and use that to creatively alter the the the, the conditions of the of the environment for those people who may be heading in that pathway. Mm. Uh, I mean, your book is going to just by its presence and being read, and people just listening to that single paragraph from from uh, <laughs> Professor Spink, that just might shift uh, shift a direction. Yeah, is that what was it? What was really the when you when you do these stories? Do you do other public speaking that where you're able to share these these uh, experiences? Yeah, I mean, I, I love public speaking, and if if you know me before the war in Libya, it was the most uh, uh, introvert. <laughs> I cannot do any public speaking. I, I was very very anxious in front of crowd, but then there are like five million Libyans. Who are voiceless, and yeah. uh, I have the privilege of telling their stories. And then, when I went to Syria and Burma, and working with the refugees from different backgrounds, I can become their voice. So it's an honor and privilege, and that's why I take any opportunity to share my story because it's not only cathartic for me; it's hopefully healing for others. Fantastic. Well, we really appreciate you being, and, and for Norton, um, contacting you and being able to do this project and put some of these things down in The Wounded Healer. And uh, we'll point everybody to that resource in the show notes. Is there any anywhere else people can connect uh, with you? A website? Yeah, I mean, my website is uh, com, and also I have uh, projectentangle.org. Oh, Fantastic. We'll put... We'll put in our magazine, uh, which which comes out every month, so that also will give people to to spend some time with the words, uh, and then hopefully be inspired to go out and uh, and get the whole book. That's what that's that's our goal for people to engage, uh, to engage in the knowing about. Um, it's it certainly, you know, we're not we're not encouraging people to race off to war zones uh, so that they can get what it's like. They can just read your book, and they can get a great deal of insight. And this is this is the, the the beauty of your message. It's a it's a safe way of learning about difficulty. Yeah, fantastic. Thank you very much, Dr. Omar Rida. Thank you so much for being with us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. Uh, it's just been so great talking. Yeah, thank you very much. It has been really a privilege. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Ah. What do I say about someone? Sweet, mm. gentle, uh, kind, but sharp and yeah. wise. Uh, well, certainly gained a lot of uh, post-trauma wisdom as he was talking about. I think. Yeah, smart as smart as a whip. And I yeah. always love talking to people who have such a fabulous grasp of of English, and just remembering, oh my God, that's not their first language. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, uh, and it always makes me feel. Um, they're not stupid. I'm quite clever, but, but the, try harder, uh, Richard. Try harder. <laughs> so, uh, but he was right. wonderful. A lot of stories. Now we've got places that we can connect with him, which we'll have in the show notes. But what are some of the things, man? So one of the websites is projectuntangled.org. Again, we'll put a link in the show notes, and um, we'll point you to his um, to his new book from Norton, 
and um, and maybe on LinkedIn is a good place also to connect with yeah, Omar. Yeah, I know he's got a website, but he's, he's still building it. I mean, he's, he is, he's doing yeah. all this stuff and he's just getting involved in all this stuff. So uh, that'll come later. So everyone connect and, and, and look at this guy. Yeah, yeah. Incredibly important for us who, um, you know, are dealing with vicarious trauma on a mm. daily basis. Absolutely. Well, Richard, uh, thanks again, everyone, for joining us here on the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. It's been wonderful. And uh, just once again, if you do like what we're doing here and you want to support us, become a member of the scienceofpsychotherapy.net. We'd love to have you as part of the tribe. Otherwise, uh, we will catch you next time. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the Science of Psychotherapy podcast. For more great science, Go to the scienceofpsychotherapy.com.